This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Everything was suddenly possible in South Africa. Things were by no means settled. It's hard to remember back, but it was a very unstable time. There were negotiations between the white minority racist government and the black and other opposition came together and fell apart and there were marches and there were assassinations and there were great uncertainty. But everybody knew something's happening here. Pay attention. The future is open now more than it has been for a long time. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. How often have you gone into a meeting hoping to reach a decision, only to find yourself in the midst of a verbal ping-pong match? You know the pattern. People lobbying or even firing words back and forth, composing their next retort and just waiting for the other person's mouth to stop moving, rather than actually listening to what they're saying. All that ever comes out of sessions like these is aggravation and anger, right? Ever wished you knew how to break through the ping-pong madness and steer the group along to useful dialogue? My guest today is known globally as a master of just that art. Adam Kahane cut his teeth in this work in the early 1990s, working on the humongously thorny challenge of how the Republic of South Africa could move beyond apartheid without descending into utter and violent chaos. Can you imagine convening sessions with white Afrikaner politicians and secret police officers in the same room as black township leaders and activists from the African National Congress and having them produce creative new ideas and actual solutions? He tells the story of that work in his first book, Solving Tough Problems, and we'll talk about it with us today. Adam has tackled many more super tough challenges since then. He worked in Colombia during the Civil War there and Argentina during its financial collapse, for example. But he's also worked with smaller communities and global corporations. His most recent book, Facilitating Breakthrough, synthesizes the lessons these experiences taught him and provides a practical guide to the 10 moves a facilitator uses to help groups overcome divides and move forward together constructively. So if you're looking for some tips on how to get a group unstuck, or just make your meetings and conversations more effective, this is definitely the podcast for you. 
Adam, it's a delight to be talking with you again. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. You have done a fascinating body of work that I've had the good fortune of interacting with on one or two occasions in person, as well as reading several of your books. But to introduce you to our audience, can we roll the tape back and start with the younger Adam Kahane, even before your college work? But I'd like to see how that thread develops. I know as an undergraduate and grad student, you trained in physics. And one of the things that fascinates me is scientists in general, and I would say physicists in particular, are not renowned in a stereotypical way for their EQ and their attentiveness to nuance and voice in other people. And yet, you've really moved into that domain in a big, big way. And I'm curious to know what that pathway was. So the young Adam grew up where and was what kind of a young boy? I grew up in Montreal. I went to university at McGill in Montreal, and my undergraduate was in physics. And I think I, the thread that's important is I, I think I went into physics, well, I liked math, but more because I had this idea that this is something for smart people. And I later did my, my master's degree uh, at Berkeley in economics, but the Berkeley economics department is also very mathematical. So for me, the, the important thing about that educational path is I really was taught, or at least I really believed that the way to solve tough problems was to have smart people figure out the answer and announce it to everybody else. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect, but, but that was the transition for me. I don't know about what my EQ was like then or now, but that's the, the shift from this idea that uh, I could figure it out myself or that my intelligence alone would be enough to the idea that at least my way of contributing was going to be to help other people put their intelligences together. When you were pursuing your physics degrees and then your economics degree, was there a certain set of issues or problems that motivated you to go down that path that you wanted to tackle? Or was it just be sure you're one of the really smart people? No, there was. When I was finishing my undergraduate degree, I did an assistantship at a conference of an organization called Pugwash. It's an organization of scientists. I think it was founded by physicists, but anyhow, various scientists, and historically had worked on questions of nuclear war. Uh, and so this was very exciting to me. I, my role was to run the photocopy machine, but I still thought it was very glamorous. <laughs> and this idea that we were working on the most important thing in the world, saving the world from being blown up. And it was at that conference that I heard a speaker, I think from India, talk about energy problems, energy and climate change and pollution. And so I switched to economics because I wanted to work on those issues. And my economics training was in, was in energy and environmental economics. But for whatever reason, I don't even think it's that important. I've always had this wish to work on big, important issues. It's because they're interesting and difficult and someone's got to tackle them. Well, and I, you know, it sounds sort of a heroic thing to do, which I still enjoy, 
But yes, that's how I got from physics to economics, and that's how I got from economics to energy companies and from energy companies to, to what I'm doing now. All right. So was Royal Dutch Shell the first energy company you worked with? Was there a few other stops on the road before that? Uh, no, the first stop along the road was at Pacific Gas and Electric in San Francisco. And then I joined Shell in London in the planning department, the scenario planning department, because I was interested in this way of thinking about the future, this so-called scenario planning methodology. And my, my electricity background was of interest to them. But that's how I ended up doing scenario work. And, and that's how I ended up starting to facilitate. Because at Shell, at least at the time, the role of the planners wasn't to make plans. The role of the planners was to facilitate executives working together to figure out their plans. That Shell scenario planning group has got to, is quite legendary in many circles. It's certainly a group that I've studied with some degree of closeness. And maybe tell us a little bit more about, you would go through a very fulsome process to try to get at what the few, what the small number of big driving forces were that was likely going to shape the future five or 10 years out and, and then lead conversations with all the business executives from across the company, as I recall. Can you elaborate a little more about what that was about? When I learned about it back when, it struck me as so powerful to get everyone to step back from all the minutiae that they're intimately familiar with in their day job and recognize that there was a much smaller number of steering currents, if you were. It was like, you know, there, there's a river flowing here that's going to take you in some direction. It's kind of a question of whether you'll veer towards the left bank or the right bank, but all the minutiae of every day could distract you from the fact that there are deeper forces shaping the world. Do I have that right? Yes, it is. Uh, uh, I think it is an interesting approach and as we'll get into, I was the springboard or the starting point for a very different kind of work I've done since. But, but yes, the idea of scenarios is that we don't know what's going to happen. We can't predict it. We can't control it. And so we have to have an understanding of different ways it could turn out so that at least in the shell or in the corporate ap uh, application of scenarios, we can adapt and survive no matter what happens. And there are an infinite number of possible futures, but that simplifying the story and saying, well, yes, there's an infinite number of possible futures, but there's two or three or four that are important to think about, uh, not because they're the most probable necessarily, but because they're, they're different and we need to, to think these possibilities for the future through in order to make wise decisions about what to do next. And yes, it does involve, although it's not easy to do, it does involve saying, well, I, my job description was go anywhere in the world, talk to anybody, trying to figure out what's happening and what could happen. So I oh, love that job description. <laughs> that, that's pretty, pretty interesting. And I started off doing that around electricity, which was my background, but I ended up in a few years being head of the global social, political, economic, environmental group. And at the time, I guess it still is, it, quite a big group of people. And yes, it was a very fulsome activity, years of work to produce a set of scenarios. Uh, the, the cone of plausibility is a, 
concept that has stuck with me from that exercise. Infinite, yes, but here are two or three or four that are plausible and of great import to our business, should the world turn out something like any of these. The other thing I found powerful about that is that you bring all these executives together and I'm sure everyone's first reaction was some sort of poo-poo. That'll never happen. Oh, come on, that that couldn't possibly be. And you would you kind of make them sit with them. You work them through that first rejection or denial or whatever, and actually get them to hold on to that scenario and and say, well, if the world was this way, here's how I would run my business, for example, and then bring out from that the implications of changes you might want to be prepared to make or watching out for telltale signs that you're going to need to adapt in that way. Yeah. The logic of the exercise is exactly what you just said, but I'm going to pick on one word you use, which sort of fast forwards to how I think about things now. I think the incorrect word in your question is the word get, get them to. Ah. I noticed you use that word because people almost always use it to describe this work of what I call facilitation. And I pick on that word because I think that mental model or assumption that the role of a facilitator is to get people to do things is deeply misguided. <laughs> You've moved past that now in your work. Well, I've thought about it much more in the, in the decades since, and we can get into that. But, but no, even then, my teacher at Shell, my primary teacher, a man named Case van der Heiden, who's written a, probably the, the best textbook on scenario planning called Scenarios, the Art of Strategic Conversation. What I learned from Case is that our capacity to be useful, we would be able to be useful in, in our job, which that job was helping executives navigate, only to the extent that we tapped into their curiosity and not knowing and wondering because our capacity as staff, in my case, junior staff, to get people to do anything was zero. And therefore, this whole question about where is, in this case, the executive coming from? What are they, what's keeping them up at night? Not sure about what is they're wanting to learn about? And how can we help them explore that with curiosity and openness and, and their energy, not ours? Got it. So in the early 90s, the Shell Scenario Planning Group, whose business is helping the energy company's executives think ahead and be flexible and agile against futures that might come, is asked to take on a very different kind of engagement in South Africa. I've always wondered how exactly that came about. And in terms of the participants you gathered, 28 people from every imaginable sector and slice of South African society. I've also always wondered why they came. I mean, you had heads of the security forces coming to an event to sit next to a Black African township leader. How did that even happen? Yeah, uh, it's a story I love to tell because it was in all respects the hinge of my life. And so I've thought about it and written about it and talked about it many times. The background is the following. Uh, Shell had and has a subsidiary in South Africa. And so I went there as part of my Shell job once to facilitate a workshop or to have some meetings with Shell South Africa people. And while I was there, 
one of the shell people, Kusum Kalyan, introduced me to some other South Africans, including members of the African National Congress. Uh, so I went in 1991, and the African National Congress had just been legalized, and Nelson Mandela had just been released from prison uh, in February of 1990. So things were opening up, things were changing, negotiations were underway. There's a lot of boycotts against the apartheid regime by other countries, right? Economic pressures. Yeah. So lots was happening, including, I think the critical part for this story is that Shell had been subject to a boycott in Europe uh, and maybe in other places because it had refused to divest from South Africa. And therefore, when these ANC or ANC-affiliated academics thought of using scenario planning, I'll come to why they did that in a way, and asked Shell, Shell, could you please send us somebody to provide methodological support? Shell was more than happy to oblige as a way of yeah, connecting to the, the, the new, the emerging powers that be. And as I was the youngest and most expendable member of the department, I was... <laughs> I was dispatched. <laughs> but scenario planning was very well known in South Africa already because other companies, particularly Anglo-American, uh, the mining company, had been using scenarios for many years. And so it was well known. And the original title of the exercise I got in, involved in, which became known as the Montfleur Scenario Exercise after the conference center, but its original title was an alternative scenario planning exercise of the left. So it was originally thinking about the future from the perspective of the left, from the perspective of the, the now legalized opposition, as an answer to the previous two or three well-known corporate scenario exercises. So the Anglo-American Anglo scenario exercises had been sort of a corporate view of what the future post-apartheid trajectory might be? Well, Yes. I mean, they had involved people from outside Anglo, and there was another exercise sponsored by a local bank called Medbank. But both of those were seen to be corporate, well, were corporate-sponsored and corporate-oriented exercises, and they were very well-known. Okay. And so the answer to your question is, in this context of 1991, where everything was suddenly possible in South Africa, things were by no means settled. It hard to remember back, but it was a very unstable time. There were negotiations between the white minority racist government and the black and other opposition came together and fell apart. And there were marches and there were assassinations and there were great uncertainty, but everybody knew something's happening here. Pay attention. The future is open now more than it has been for a long time. And so that's why this group of left-wing activists thought, no, let's do scenario planning. And we know that Shell has a method for that. So let's get them to, to help us. And that's how I came to facilitate uh, this uh, Montfleur scenario exercise. And there were many uh, innovations in that work, but one of them was a, a Shell colleague of mine gave me the advice that I should give to the project organizers that they should try to involve what he called some awkward sods. 
And this was part of the Shell approach that we would try to find people with different points of view. But in Shell, this was quite a big undertaking because we had to hire consultants or professors or interview people. But the Montfleur organizers did something that nobody had ever done before and which has which changed everything, which is that they decided that the team itself who would do the scenario work would not just be people from the ANC or from the University of the Western Cape, which was an ANC leaning university, but they would compose the team of actors and leaders from across the whole system. So black and white opposition and establishment, men and women, politicians, trade unionists, company people, academics. And, you know, it was only 28 people, so it wasn't everybody in the country, but it was a very diverse group of people who were not used to talking to each other and didn't, in many cases, didn't agree with or like or trust each other. Remember the word apartheid, the literal meaning of the word apartheid just means apartness yeah. in, in Afrikaans. And one of the features or the central feature of apartheid was legally enforced separation. Different racial groups were citizens of different so-called countries or so-called homelands. They went to different universities. They lived in different areas. They weren't allowed to marry or to socialize with alcohol. Any other, there were lots of so-called petty apartheid rules. So bringing everybody together in a conference center in the wine country with where we worked together and ate together and drank wine together and argued uh, late into the night and went for walks together was really a big deal. It wasn't the only, I mean, there were, there were many such things happening at that time. It was, there were hundreds of such meetings, but this was the one I was involved in. And this was the one that, that used the scenario methodology. So this just in every respect blew the hinges off my idea of what you could do and what I could do and, and everything I've done since has arisen from that experience in, in 91, 92. One of the anecdotes I remember from your book about this experience called Solving Tough Problems, which, by the way, I have recommended to more people than I can count, is of a, a white Afrikaner, as I recall from the security forces, seated in a circle, so not square tables, no props that give people a separation from each other, just sitting in a circle, you on a chair. And the white gentleman looks over at the African next to him and at some point says something like, you have to understand, I was raised to see you as an animal. What must those first hours and days have been like of those people who had that such deeply ingrained, deeply rooted views and fears and experiences of each other to be in a room side by side. And I still have that question of how hard was it or easy to get them to come together in the first place across those extraordinarily deeply rooted divides? Well, let me respond to that second point and then go back to the circle. So there'd be a number of ways to think about it. I guess the, the rational way or the, or the strategic way would be to say that the future was open people who had been confident that they knew what was going to happen or could control what was going to happen or, or knew the people that they needed to know to get where they wanted to go were now in doubt. Everything was now in doubt. So I think there was a sense that I need to be in this room. 
because it's it's interesting and exciting and gives me opportunities to learn and to have influence that I wouldn't have if I didn't come into the room. Now, it sounds easier than it is, and the two organizers of the project, or the three organizers, Peter Rue, Vincent Mapai, and Dorothy Busak, spent months inviting people, and most people said yes, a few people said no, and they ended up with the team that was there when I arrived. But I think there's, a, there's another way to look at this. I wouldn't say it's more true, but it's another another aspect of it that I focused on, and it relates to this word, getting people to do things. Another way to look at it is that the separation, the apartness, the fear of the other, the distance from the other is painful. And people want to be connected to what's going on, to each other, to their own humanity, and given an opportunity to do that, which is not too risky, and here's where the scenario method comes into it, it's, it's just getting together to tell some stories. You're not, and the worst that can happen is you'll waste a weekend. So the fact that this is a low, low threshold, high ceiling activity, much later I uh, was talking about this phenomena with a woman who works in dialogue in the United States, and she told me an extraordinary story. She said that her husband had been swimming in a lake and he'd been run over by a motorboat and the propeller of the motorboat had cut a huge piece out of his thigh and they'd rushed him to the hospital. And the surgeon said to this woman who was telling me the story, look, all I can really do is to clean the wound, but it will heal something like the wound wants to be whole again, or the two sides want to join up again. Other than that, I mean, I don't know surgically what he did, but th the point is there wasn't much he could do. He was relying on the healing, whatever you call it, energy. or <laughs> And so I, this was such an extraordinary metaphor to me because that's what I think this other aspect is, that there's a wound that wants to heal. And if you can find a a safe-ish and interesting-ish way to enable that to happen, then it will happen. And you don't need to get it to happen. You just need to get out of the way. So that comes back to your point. I actually don't remember the specific remark you quoted. Uh, I mean, I don't have such a good memory, so it may be that that happened. But actually, this thing about chairs, I think, is important. So I'll just take 30 seconds on it. I did change the chairs at Montfleur halfway in the following sense. When I came into the conference center, there was a circle of tables with people that people would sit behind and look at each other. And what I did is I took out one side of the square, so not a circle of tables, a square of tables. I took out one side of the square so that everybody's attention was on the whiteboard rather than on each other. Later on, not at Montfleur, but later on, my colleagues and I have come to use the setup that you referred to, which is we're sitting in a circle, not a square, and there's no table in front of us, which can feel a bit vulnerable or anyhow, unprotected, I guess you could say. And many interesting things have happened in such circles, all of which could be put under the heading connecting, including 
yes, I, uh, and I've told many, many stories about one particular kind of activity that we've done tens of times, which is having people in such a circle, maybe in an evening, maybe after a glass of two of wine, telling stories about their own lives that they think is in some way related to what we're talking about. We didn't do this in Altfleur, but I've done it many times since. And there, the impact is exactly as you've said. I still might not agree with you. I still might not trust you, but I see that you are a human being. You're not an animal. It was Carl Rogers who said, what is most personal is most universal. And these circles of storytelling have been the single most effective ways to achieve that connection that you were asking about. If I recall correctly, the Montfleur exercise resulted in, was it four scenarios? Three of them versions of sort of disastrous, the white Afrikaner regime backlashes and tries to repress the country again. Black Africans take over and are sort of drunk with power and run wild and like a rocket that burns out. And then there's a scenario you dubbed Flamingo. Yeah. So there was a third one, uh, a third negative one, or a third with a bad ending, which was called lame duck, where the the constitutional negotiations produce a, a government which is too constrained to be able to do anything. But yes, we produced four scenarios. And the fourth scenario that you referred to, Flamingos, was the one where the country... South African rose together and slowly. That's the flamingo's metaphor. But it's interesting to me that in this time of great hopefulness that things are starting to move and negotiations are starting and there's a way forward here for the first time in decades, if not centuries, the scenarios that were the most influential was not the shared vision, which people arrived at a little grudgingly, but the scenarios that were really influential in that context were the three warnings, call them prophetic warnings. Watch out. And in particular, the warning of Icarus, it's funny to me that you remember as a rocket, but it was <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's referring to the Greek myth of, of Icarus. Fly too close to the sun. Yeah. But that was really a very surprising scenario because a group that was dominated by economists from the left was essentially saying, pay attention to the prudence of the economic transition, because if we don't handle this well, we'll crash the economy and we won't get where we want to go. And that, more than anything, was, was what was influential. Montfleur was a modest exercise. Uh, it's important to me for reasons I can explain in a second, but it had a modest influence in South Africa. But the, the domain in which it had influence was in the domain of the economic policy of the then elected the government of Nelson Mandela, and many members of the team joined that new government. And what they had learned, especially about the Icarus danger, uh, was very influential in the economic policy of, of the Mandela government, which was much more successful than anybody expected. How about the impact of the relationships and trust that had formed at Montfleur? Did that have a carry-on effect as well? Uh, yes, it did. I think I wasn't so much aware of, I wasn't focused on that at the time. Since then, I've come to think that the relationships and connections and alliances and trust of people in such diverse teams is 
in many, if not most cases, the big impact. But at the time, I was focused on the, the scenario part of it, the idea part of it. This year was the 30th anniversary of Montfleur, and we had a reunion Zoom call a couple of months ago with men, most of the members of the team. A few are deceased, but most of them are still around. And it was clear to me that maybe not the relationships, but the experience uh, really had shaped them and uh, had shaped them and their subsequent work. Now, the impact of Montfleur on me or on my, my thinking was pretty extensive uh, in a number of respects. So first of all, and maybe most importantly, from a professional point of view, what struck me about Montfleur was that methodologically, we were doing exactly what we had done at Shell. I didn't know any other method. I was asked to facilitate this process. And the steps I used were exactly those we'd used at Shell. But I noticed something was completely different. The energy, the, the aliveness in the group, in me, in the creativity of the group, the purposefulness of the group was something different. And what I realized soon was that although the methodology was the same, the objective and purpose was completely different. The purpose of the work in Shell, the purpose of doing scenario work in Shell was we don't know what's going to happen. We can't control it. We can't predict it. So let's adapt as best we can. But the South Africans did not come together to adapt as best they can. They came together to try to influence what would happen. And this shift from what I call an adaptive orientation to a transformative orientation was extraordinary. And I became very interested in this way of working, which I didn't know was possible to bring together such a diverse group to act together to shape the future. I was fascinated by South Africa, which was undergoing an epochal transition that was very interesting and exciting. And, and I also became, as you know, very interested by the woman who was the organizer of the project, Dorothy Busak. And so by the end of the project, I had resigned from Shell and moved from London to Cape Town and married Dorothy. And that's pretty well set me on the path of the, of the last 30 years doing that work, moving between Canada and South Africa, and still happily married to Dorothy. Wonderful. You've carried that work forward into so many fascinating and challenging domains. Again, the ones that still stun and still somewhat mystify me are the ones that have really deep historical and cultural roots to them. And you've got another book, uh, which I confess I've not yet had a chance to read, but you've got the cover of it on a wall behind you. So talk to me a bit about why a book would come out with a cover that is a hand grenade shaped as a heart. <laughs> I've written five books and the, the new one is coming out uh, in August or has come out in August. And I like writing books and it's a pleasure and a challenge and a craft that I fell into without expecting to, and which has taught me a lot about well, about a lot of things, including about what it takes to create something, and in particular, the, the iterative process of creation. But beyond that craft, writing for me has given me this rhythm every few years of stepping back from what I've been doing, because my day job is doing this kind of facilitation in these, usually in these very fraught and difficult and conflictual 
and confusing contexts. That's my day job. But the chance to step back every few years and reflect on it, and almost always to reflect on what didn't work. So I don't know if everybody's like this, but but for me, learning or my biggest learnings, most of them have come from bumping my head. That I think things are one way, I go forward at full speed, thinking they're like that, and I bump into a wall and I fall down and I eventually after days or months, depending on how big, I myself up and I say, what happened here? What am I missing? And so that's, that's been my rhythm of writing. And the book you referred to, which in English is called Power and Love, A Theory and Practice of Social Change, arose, well, from many experiences, but especially a very complicated project I was involved in facilitating in India that brought together different actors, government, community, corporate, working on the issue of child and maternal malnutrition. So very difficult for, for lots of reasons. And the project itself was very complicated and difficult. And I hit my head very hard in that. And the reflection I had after, I guess, several years before the book was finished was that previously I had been focusing on love, uh, which is exactly the phenomena that we were talking about earlier, about the wound wanting to be whole, or as the German-American theologian Paul Tillich defined it, he said, love is the drive to unite the separated. So still think that this is very important, and that's why I, I have emphasized even in this conversation the move from apartness to wholeness, the feeling of, of connection and relatedness and, and oneness that can be achieved and is a driving force for any multi-stakeholder dialogue. But I realized through the work in India and, and other experiences that that's only half the story and dangerously only half the story, that there's another half of the story, which Tillich calls power. And I'm using these definitions because, of course, the words love and power have, have many meanings, but Tillich defines power as the drive of everything living to realize itself. So this drive to, to grow and to get stuff done and to achieve your ambition and to, to become who you are or who your organization or your country is. And to make a long story short, <laughs> one of the people who studied Tillich and who wrote his doctoral dissertation on Tillich was Martin Luther King Jr. And in one of King's speeches, he said, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. This clash between Immoral power and powerless morality is the central crisis of our time. And when I heard that quote, and later I realized that King was using the words power and love as Tillich had defined them. When I heard that quote, I thought, that's it. That's exactly what I'm dealing with in my work. So I chose that that formulation and those definitions, not because I have any special uh, 
affinity with King or for that matter with Tillich, who I'd never heard of, but because I thought this had enormous explanatory value that I could make out in my work as a facilitator, this interplay between power without love, which everybody's aware of, very obvious, people just trying to get what they want, no matter who they have to steamroll over to get there, but also this opposite danger of love without power or love denying power, which is sort of the country and Western song, I, I love you, I can't live without you. In other words, the unit, anyway, there's a, there's a lot of ways to say this, but <laughs> I've become very interested in that. That's what the book was about. But I'm going to just take it one step further because the new book I've written takes it one step further. You've got a triad in, in breakthrough yes. facilitation. Yeah. So the new book is called a Facilitating Breakthrough, How to Remove Obstacles, Bridge Differences, and Move Forward Together. I mean, all of my books are about the same thing, but they're trying to develop my understanding. And especially this book is about the practice of facilitation. It refers to removing obstacles in the sense that we were talking about a while ago, that the job of the facility is not to get people to do things, but to remove the obstacles to them doing what they know they need to do, which can be expressed as removing the obstacles, the expression of love or connection, removing the obstacles, the expression of contribution or power. And the third element is removing the obstacles, the expression of equity or justice. And in King's work and Tillich's work, they talk about that threefold imperative or those three drives. And so I think that I've got now closer to a full story of what is required to help people bridge differences and move forward together. So in the forward of your book, Facilitating Breakthrough, uh, Edgar Schein from MIT's Sloan School, one of the things he said in his preface that seems to me a really nice, succinct summary of what you're doing in facilitating, but I'd love you to expound on it a bit. To see facilitation as the creation and management of new social systems and cultural islands that enable conflicting parties to get unconflicted. It was fun working on this or talking about this with Ed Shine because he has a different professional background than I do. Well, he's a professor, but he's also done most of his work in organizations. And this idea in organizational facilitation of the social island, that we get away from the office and we create this temporary space where we can relate to one another in a different way. And so that's what he sees. That's what he was noticing in my work, that these, these workshops are social, that I was referring to are social islands, but the difference is I'm not in general or my own work is not usually with different people from within the same organ company or organization, but people from across a larger social system. And I think he was interested by the fact that facilitation, which is a, a way of working with people that, that applies to all groups, can also work in groups that are mired in conflict and that don't necessarily agree with or like or trust each other. I think that surprised and interested him. And so what I've tried to do in in this book is, as in all my books, explain based on my experience, explain in particular what exactly does the facilitator need to do 
to be able to remove obstacles, bridge differences, and help people move forward together. Yeah, there's a an attentiveness. I love this as a sort of counterpoint to my long ago reading of solving tough problems. I was inspired by solving tough problems and sort of tried to emulate what I interpreted the methodologies would have been that created those responses, created that trust and that openness that you tell about in solving tough problems. And facilitating breakthrough is it's kind of laying out for me the DNA. It's making explicit some of the moves, techniques that I, I think I've been insightful enough to pick up and infer from tough problems, but it's crystallized them in a really interesting way, which leads me to ask you something else. And that is, in some respect, this is about hosting or creating a space for conversations that are different than the conversations any of these disparate groups might have been able to have with each other before, that social or that cultural island, if you will. But we all are involved in conversations in our personal life, in our work life, in our community life. I don't know any human being that's ever been taught how to have a conversation. We are taught how to present. We are taught how to lay out a line of argument. We're taught how to advocate. We're taught how to transmit to other people our views or ideas or desires. But there's you know, there's no real focus on having a conversation. But across all the work that you've done, surely there are a few bits of insights that could serve as tips or guideposts for anybody who'd like to try to make a conversation in their life more authentic, more productive, more constructive than otherwise. Got any pointers or watchwords for the non-professional facilitator in the everyday world of human conversation? Yes, I do. In case anybody who who knows me in real life is listening to this, I need to make the disclaimer that the fact that I can talk about it doesn't mean I can always do it. <laughs> yes, we all know we all know that problem. <laughs> and uh, certain of my colleagues and family members might say, "Adam, should, walk the uh, talk, uh, Dad. Walk the talk a little better." <laughs> but with that caveat, uh, yes, I I think that a different kind of conversation is the foundation of this, and in that sense, the scenario methodology for it, for example, is just an interesting application, but not for me the the foundational point. I, I've worked a bit over the years with uh, one of Ed Schein's colleagues at MIT named Otto Scharmer, who's written wonderful books. And one framework he's used a lot, I mean, he takes it much, much further than what I'm about to explain, but he talks about a four ways of talking and listening. I've referred to that in all of my books because I, I think it provides a wonderful framework for what we're talking about, which is that, if not the A basis for changing what's happening in, in a group or a system, is to change the way they're talking with each other, and even more importantly, the way they're listening to each other. And that's important because we generally pay more attention to the active function, in this case, talking, than to the receptive function listening. So uh, Sharmer talks about moving from downloading, like downloading a file from the internet where I'm telling you the truth about the situation and I'm not even listening. I'm just waiting for your mouth to stop moving so I can go back to telling you the truth about the situation. He talks about downloading. The astronaut version of that is being stuck in transmit. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
anyhow, he talks about downloading, debating, dialoguing, and presencing. But the tip embedded in that is the key transition is to get out of transmit mode, is to get just get out of downloading. And then I mean, you can do lots beyond that, but that's the key. And I had a colleague in South Africa, Louis van der Merwe, who used to say to clients who were in transmit mode, downloading mode, banging the table saying the truth is, he used to say to them playfully, could you just put in my opinion at the beginning of that <laughs> sentence? And if that doesn't work, try in my humble opinion. <laughs> and I thought it was brilliant because technically, at least in Sharmer's framework, the transition from downloading, out of downloading is suspending, which means I have an idea. It's maybe what I really think about things, but I'm going to hang it on a string in front of me so that you can look at it, I can look at it, we can talk about it, we can attack it, we can interrogate it, and it's not me, it's the idea. Now, maybe by the end, I'll take it back, I still think this thing, but maybe through that exchange, uh, I will have seen things differently, and that's the act of suspending. And Louis's tip, just add in my humble opinion, is reminding me, this is how I think about things, but it's just my opinion, it's not the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's for me, the, and there's many, many other things about creating a space in which people can connect to each other and work together and act together uh, with greater effectiveness. But that's the starting point, suspending. Yeah. I also love the phrase that I know you've used in some of your work, hosting a conversation. And in, when I was running a large organization in recent years, I took pains to tell my people I, the charge here is not to have a meeting or convene a group. The charge here is to host a conversation and make sure it is really a conversation that you hear from everyone and that you listen to what they're saying. And it, especially with the younger associates, it proved to be astonishingly powerful. Mm -hmm. So you've done tremendous work helping South Africa move through a very fraught and pregnant period. And Similarly, we've not taken time to touch on this, but similarly daunting work in Colombia following the peace negotiations with the FARC. We live in pretty fraught and strident times around the world right now, but in particular here where I sit in the United States. So I can't resist asking you, if the United States hired you or some group in the United States came to you to help us move through our very strident, hyper-partisan moment in time, how would you go about that? Is where and how would you see hope and what kind of conversation would you bring us into to move forward and collaborate together? Yeah, so you're right that I've used what I learned in South Africa 30 years ago and off and on since then in many other places all around the world, a lot in Latin America and Asia, Europe, and elsewhere in Africa, but also in my home country of Canada, work related to one of the most difficult things in Canada, which relates to the position and relationship with uh, Indigenous people. And I have also worked in the United States and am currently working in the United States, not hired by the country, but with a particular group of activists uh, working on scenarios for the future of US democracy. So I'm very much in the middle of that <laughs> today, 
literally today is the day we're speaking. I've been working on this all morning. So I won't talk uh, much about that work, which is right in the middle now, that of which is not clear, but it has, anyhow, it's given me the opportunity over the past few months to engage with these issues, not just by reading the New York Times, which I've done every day for 30 years, but but to engage with with a committed and brilliant and passionate uh, advocates and activists. So yes, um, the sort of things I think about are polarization. I think you use that word. And polarization to me is not a problem. It's a phenomenon that arises in all systems all the time and can be productive and generative, but it can also be degenerative and destructive. So that's one aspect of this. So I don't think it's about not having polarities or not allowing polarities or not allowing difference or conflict, but at what point are the polarities so severe that one is trying to eliminate the other? Relatedly, I think a lot about authoritarianism, which is manifested in downloading. I have the truth. I have the power. I need it to be the way I want it to be. And I'm going to use whatever power I have, whether it's elected authority or my billions of dollars or my charisma or my guns to make it the way I want it to be, regardless of what you want. So I see all of this at play, not just the United States, but elsewhere. And it worries me because I think the, 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 the structures that allow this to be, allow these phenomena to be worked with democratically and peacefully and productively are pretty shaky many places in the world, including in the United States, and for that matter, including in Canada. So, sorry, this is a long way of saying the way I th think about my work and Rios's work and what I'm trying to do in, in these books, including this new book, is to, is to strengthen the collaboration and dialogue option. Because if people can't succeed in collaborating, because they're doing it wrong or they're, they're thinking about it wrong or they're missing parts of it or they're not skilled, then they will default to sorting things out through force, through downloading, through authoritarianism. And I don't want that. And so what I'm trying to do is to explain and strengthen and make more uh, successful and more widespread, the kind of transformative processes, transformative facilitation, transformative collaboration, systemic transformation that I first saw in South Africa 30 years ago. Well, I hope you succeed. And I, I hope there's a book that will follow facilitating breakthrough that is the magic of transformation in our authoritarian times or something, something that says, we have managed to round the corner in a positive, in a positive direction, a constructive direction. Well, part of it is, of course, you know, there's lots of terrible things going on in the world and also lots of wonderful things going on in the world. And in my field, lots of examples of people, even in the most complex and confusing and conflictual contexts, finding ways to move forward together. I, 
to give you a hundred examples in the United States, in Myanmar, in, in Haiti. So another thing I'm trying to do is to make visible these examples of collaboration and of facilitating collaboration. The contribution I can make or that I'm trying to make is I'm not just talking about something in theory that I hope could be done. I'm talking about something I've seen with my own eyes over and over and over. And so that's an existence proof. Uh, you, right. uh, we talked about physics. And what I remember from many days of uh, working out physics problems with pen and paper is this thing called an existence proof. You're just proving it is possible. Right. So that's what I'm trying to do. I, I have the existence proof. It is possible people, even people who don't agree with or like or trust each other, to work together and to move forward together. And that's the message I want to spread. Well, and we'll be forever grateful for you for giving us those examples, but also through all of your books, in particular, facilitating breakthrough, you know, making comprehensible to us some of the tools and techniques, skills that, that you've accumulated over your many, many years of practice. Because I think each of us every day has some small opportunity to be a force, be an influence for a more collaborative, constructive conversation, at least in our little circle of action radius. So yes, this is what I've tried to do in facilitating breakthrough is to write a practical book about, about the moves involved in helping people remove obstacles, bridge differences, and move forward together. And I think what I still carry with me from all those years of math and physics is a wish to try to find the simplest way of saying things. So I have found something which is simple, but not easy. So the simple part is the following. All it takes to facilitate breakthrough is 10 moves. That's it. It's a vocabulary with just 10 words. It's not a hundred words. It's not a thousand. It's not an infinite number. It's just 10 things you have to do. That's the simple part. The not easy part is that you have to do them. There is not a predetermined order or rhythm to doing them. And the only way to know what to do is to pay attention to what's the move that's required right now, right here. And that's what the book's about. What's the, what is the attentiveness, the presence that enables you to decide, okay, which move do I make next? That's it. That's all it takes. Give me some example of the kind of cues, either words or body language or something that you might be watching for in a group as the signal that would attune you to your next move. Yeah. So that's a great question. And uh, that, that's exactly how I explain it. The verbal or energetic signals, just like the telltales in sailing where I don't know what the rocket ship equivalent of a telltale is anyhow. <laughs> there's, there's no air, so there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, that signal that you know is, okay, now I have to tack. But uh, let me give you an example because it's exactly as you just said. So the first pair of moves is the one we were talking about earlier, advocating versus inquiring. And so when individuals or the group as a whole is saying the truth is... We just ought to do. We just ought to do. We, we know this. That's fine. That can be very helpful. But if it goes too far for too long, 
What's useful is to say, are there other ways to think about this? What are other views? Does anybody have anything else to say about this? So to promote the inquiry. And when inquiring goes too far, everybody's just saying, well, I've got my truth. This is what, this is my experience, period. Then to encourage the other, which is okay, who has an idea about how to bring this together? Who can advocate for, for a way forward? Yeah, because if it just becomes everyone with their own thing, it's you know back to physics. It's Brownian motion. It's separate atoms doing their own thing. There's yes. no co- there's no cohesion. There's no group anymore. Yeah, and so that's exactly it. The word group in English has two meanings. Uh, it's funny you try to if you're trying to use the word group in a sentence, eventually you realize. It took me some years to realize this that it's one of these nouns that ha- that is both singular and plural. When is it useful to focus on the group as a singular? What we're going to do, what we believe, our objective, that's very important. But the opposite is also important, the group as plural, what different ones of us want or believe are and need. And in essence, the essence of facilitating breakthrough is to move back and forth between these two poles. The, what I call the vertical pole, the horizontal pole, or the, the the singular group and the multiple group. Well, I like you call it the bossy vertical in the book, and I love that phrase. I am the leader. I have the solution. I know what to do. Here's the instructions. <laughs> yes, yes, which I do a lot, and <laughs> and is sometimes half the time very useful and half the time completely not useful. <laughs> well, Adam, it's such a delight to talk with you. I remain grateful that you continue this important work and are sharing with us ways to understand it, ways to take heart from the proofs that you've developed through your practice. They do give me heart, tremendous heart. And I will say again, I, the nuggets that I have taken from your work and your books over the years have helped me be more effective than I might otherwise have been without them in, in many challenging organizational settings. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And I've also been taking notes in this conversation, so you helped me understand some things that I wasn't clear about before. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again, perhaps in person someday. I hope so. And thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this opportunity to get to know Adam Kahane and his remarkable body of work. I came away with a number of new insights that will certainly help me navigate my work in our challenging times, and I hope you did too. You'll find many more in his books. And let me tell you, solving tough problems blew the hinges off my notion of conversation when I first read it 20 years ago and gave me tips I've used ever since to design and facilitate effective meetings. Our world needs many more people who know how to host genuine conversations and move beyond the ping pong game. Why don't you become one of them? Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.